1 Corinthians 16. God willing, over the next two weeks, we'll conclude our study in this letter. We, we actually began on January 10th. It's been uh, nine months in this particular letter. I hope it's been helpful for you. It certainly has been for me. Um, so this morning we're going to come to a portion of the letter, I think, where a lot of people would just tend to go ahead and close up the Bible. Because they presume he's done and now he's about to just make some practical comments to friends and stuff like that. But these practical principles that he gives in closing tell us something about Paul's character and the character of the God who has shaped him. And and really everything that we're going to talk about this morning is also fleshed out more fully in other parts of the scriptures. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 16 this morning, verses 1 through 12. Remember... We believe this is God's word written. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. This is the words, of the, the the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us and teach us. Uh, we approach this, Lord, not as a dead letter, but as your very words, which proceed from your mouth. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might have ears to hear what you would say to your people. And likewise, Lord, I pray that you would be willing to use a a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, sincere believers who are growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will increasingly reflect the character of the God of the Bible. And the change which occurs over a long period of time, influences your views, it influences your opinions, it influences your life choices, it influences how you treat other people. And you can tell that some people call this a biblical world and life view. Some people call it seeing things through the lens of Scripture. Some people call it a Christian worldview, whatever you call it. The point is the same. As you grow in your relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit... Working in you causes you to conform your pattern of life to God's word. Your thoughts and your actions gradually take on the character of God. 
Now, most of the comments in chapter 16 are comments that reveal something about what the Lord has done in Paul's own heart. How God has shaped Paul, then you and I getting to read his mail can fill in the gaps and learn how the Lord worked in him, likewise in us. What has the Lord worked in Paul's life? What does he care about at this season of his ministry? Before we proceed, I want to just encourage you and me to be gracious to each other. And that is because everybody who's following Christ is at a very different place in the process of sanctification. Which means that all of us have blind spots. Which is why you and I need other believers in our lives. So that we can walk along with someone else and learn from them how to follow Jesus. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have digging deeper. Because spiritual growth takes place in the context of fellowship and community. But let's also be honest. As we're gracious, let's be honest. And that is that the nature of the human heart is almost always to presume that his or her blind spots are more significant than my own. Which means that I often get more bothered by your blind spots than I get with my own blind spots. And likewise, you to me. The text is here to speak directly to those blind spots. And I think not all the concepts are fleshed out fully, but you really do get some important biblical principles that we need to consider as we follow Christ. If you belong to Jesus, the text says, the king's character informs your life practices. And so you have three principles of the Lord's character that are revealed here for the sake of your own life practice. Number one, principles of giving. Number two, principles of ministry. Number three, principles of the Lord's servants. We start with principles of giving. We'll spend more time here because that's really more of the substance of the verses here. I think there's already been a mention of the problem in another correspondence because when Paul says, now concerning... He's responding to something they've asked him about, and he's probably already mentioned. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. We don't know precisely the reason, but we know that the church in Jerusalem has fallen on a really hard time. So much so that all of the apostles seem very concerned with the plight of the Christians in Jerusalem. And the the issue is so big to Paul that he mentions it in to the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, and the church at Rome. And so you and I, sitting here, so far from that moment, say, why in the world was the church in Jerusalem having so much trouble? Well, famine was not an uncommon problem in Jerusalem. It happened many times. It could be that. Others have suggested that what began so beautifully in the church of Jerusalem in the early church was really unsustainable in the long term. What am I talking about? Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. That's possible, right? The American capitalist in each of us says clearly that kind of reckless abandon is not sustainable. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Another option, I think it makes more sense, is that during the time of the Roman occupation, Jerusalem Jerusalem is economically oppressed. And so what few jobs do remain would be given not to Christians, but to those who are still practicing the religion of their homeland. 
Judaism. In other words, the Jews who follow Judaism aren't interested in giving the available work to Christians if they can give it to Jews. could be a combination of all three of these. But it's here where our speculation about the circumstance warns us of a danger which is inherent in our own hearts. And that is this. Many of us really do not have a heart for the poor. More than that, we may not even have a heart for Christians who are in poverty. There's a knee-jerk reaction in me that I bet you can relate to. It's a knee-jerk reaction which is more American than it is biblical. Instead of looking at this text and saying, God has a heart for the poor. God is generous as His beloved child. I want to pattern my life after His heart. That's where I should be. But instead, what I find myself doing is struggling with the speculation. Now let's be clear. The Bible says we should have a heart for the poor, but more specifically, a heart for the poor followers of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So God commands His people to take care of the material needs of other believers in the broader context of the church. After that, you can seek to take care of the problem of hunger in the whole world. Here's where you and I run into this text and have a problem. If you have been here from day one, you will say, I think this is the first time I've ever heard Eric talk about money, and it's the the first time I've ever heard him talk about poverty. And if that's the case, I don't know if it is, if it's the case, it's simply because it's the first time we've come to it in the text. Which actually adds more weight to it when we do come to it, doesn't it? Here's what I find in my own heart. Prosperity and capitalism leads me to this tendency. I am really willing to give to the poor if I don't think they got themselves into it. I'm also really willing to give to the poor if they spend my money responsibly. How in the world do we deal with hard attitudes like that? Which really run counter to God's heart of generosity? I think the text gives us the answer. Take a look at it in verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is not a passage about regular tithing to the church. But when you let the text speak for itself and you begin to apply the Bible to the various places in which it applies, you come away with really practical wisdom from the heart of God. So one way to avoid the judgmental stinginess of my heart is to give through the church. It's certainly true of regular tithing. But if we are taking collections for the poor, you can also give through the denomination. Like we have a ministry mission to North America, which is currently dealing with a disaster response related to Hurricane Ida at the coast. There's ways to give there. PCA Retirement and Benefits has a ministerial relief offering for widows. 
which James says the, the real heart of religion is to take care of widows and orphans. And this offering used to be called the Christmas offering. It's a way to give to those in need. You can also give to other organizations over and above the tithe, various kingdom works that are both trustworthy and effective. And in giving this way, you guarantee that the right hand doesn't really know what the left hand is doing. And I can entrust other people who are at ground level to do the work better than I could possibly do it. Now personally, here's what it looks like for me. I want to encourage you that I'm about to tell you my thinking. Some of these matters are issues of conscience, and so I would encourage you simply to be guided by the Holy Spirit and God's Word. I am not likely to give cash to the homeless guy who approaches me on the street in downtown Birmingham. Number one, I have no sense that that will really be effective. Number two, 100% of the time, I'm going to walk away pridefully. That's going to be my first thought. I am such a kind person. And then the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go, wait, what did he do with the money I just gave him? Which leads me into sort of a tailspin and takes me back to my problem of stinginess in the first place. When you give to the church, When you give to other trustworthy ministries, you avoid the Messiah complex. Hey, what a great guy I am. I'm saving you from your poverty. Guards me from walking with a sense of pride. But it also quite often puts the money into a place where it can be used for the best and broadest use. Another practical matter that Paul mentions here, he says, bring it weekly. God says, There is something good for your heart. There's something useful in worship when you bring an offering to God regularly. Now, somebody will say, well, I don't actually get paid every week. I get paid once a month. I get paid every two weeks. I don't think Paul's trying to split hairs here. Imagine the context of manual labor. You do a particular job. You get paid for that job. The Lord says, turn and give a portion of that back to the Lord. In contrast, someone might say, well, you know, there's a lot of tax benefits, a lot of interest earning that I could potentially make if I held on to the money and tithed at the end of the year. I like to earn that interest. But here, the Bible seems to give a correlation between your ability to worship and your willingness to give. Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, learning to give properly is a central part of learning to worship properly. And we, never, we have never really learned to worship the Lord until we have learned to give to the Lord. As I mentioned in my letter to the congregation, the church is doing well financially. So I'm really thankful I'm not preaching on this particular passage when we are at some level desperate. Preaching on the passage when it comes up in the text. Then it says... The obvious question, then, how much should I set aside, Paul? Well, a definitive number is not given. Again, he's not talking about the tithe. He's talking about an offering. He says, set aside something in correlation to how the Lord has caused you to prosper. One of the most common questions that I receive as a pastor is, do you think the tithe is still binding on Christians? And let me say this. If you've ever asked me that question, I'm actually not mentioning 
you or even thinking of our conversation. This happens so often that it just is worth mentioning. The follow-up question, it's a question that I was wrestling with when I was 25 years old, is this. Well, then, do I tithe on the gross or do I tithe on the net? Do I tithe after I've paid the Department of Treasury or before? Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked the question in the opposite direction. Should we pay the Department of Treasury? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? If you remember Mark chapter 12, they come and Jesus knows he's being tricked. He basically says, why are you trying to test me in this? Then he says, go get me a denarius. Brings the denarius to him. He looks at it. He says, whose face is on the front of this denarius? Oh, that's Caesar. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then the Bible says they marveled at him. They marveled. I wonder if you're marveling at this concept. Jesus is making the point. This much belongs to Caesar. This much belongs to God. What are you called to not give to the Lord? Everything of your life is the Lord's. Everything of the way you live and serve Him is devoted to Him as an an offering of thanksgiving. That's actually the the whole motivation of the gospel. Christ has saved you. Turn and live for Him. And here again we see that Jesus makes this subtle point. Yahweh is a generous God. Everything in the entire universe belongs to Him. And His character informs your life practice. The tithe in the Old Testament is is like a required minimum of giving to the Lord in His kingdom work. The tenth concept, though, it doesn't begin in the law of Moses. Genesis chapter 14, 400 years before the law of Moses, on the heels of Abraham being delivered in a mighty victory in battle, Abraham comes and he gives the tenth to this man whose name is Melchizedek, who's called the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, and a priest of God Most High. Is Eric my priest? Should you be giving your tithe to me? No! Please don't. Jesus is your priest. Give your gift to Jesus. As I study this passage, I find myself convicted. And I find myself convicted not because I've come to the law of Moses, not because I've come to Mount Sinai and I've tried to crunch the numbers at the bottom of the mountain. I'm convicted because my heart doesn't really reflect the heart of my king. Listen to Jesus. Luke chapter 6. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now, how does Paul interpret Jesus for the sake of the Corinthians at Corinth? He writes a fourth letter, which you and I call 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And then he attaches a promise to that. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all times, in all things, in all times, you may abound in every good work. Quotes the Old Testament. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Where do I get the concept of saying freely you have received, now freely give? There. When you think about giving to the Lord... Your first thought should not be, how generous can I afford to be with God? But rather, how generous has God already been with me? The Bible says I was impoverished in my sin. And Jesus, who was rich for my sake, became poor. At the cost of his own life, he purchased me from hell. God is a generous God who distributes freely, who gives to the poor, and it's His character to be that way. Spiritually generous in Christ. You know, the material stuff is not the main part of His generosity. The material stuff is actually the overflow part that Jesus was talking about in both Mark 12 and Luke 6. Quick side note, you look at verse 2, you notice... Believers are worshiping on Sunday. Early Christians began to call it the Lord's Day. And it became the day when believers worshipped. It's, it's proven here. It's proven in Acts chapter 20 at verse 7. It's also proven in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. The day of the Lord changed for Christians from Saturday to Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. Now, that was a quick side note. Look at verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So financial accountability is also a biblical principle. Paul says, you pick the guys to carry the finances. If you think I should join them, I'll be happy to go together with them. Incidentally, in this church, I don't have any idea about your giving patterns. That's really the way it ought to be. And so we basically follow a biblical pattern in this church, which is also practiced in other PCA churches. For the sake of oversight and accountability and even shepherding, some deacons and some elders have access to some information. More than that, I don't really have access to the church's finances. I couldn't write a check. I couldn't sign a check. And all of this is precisely the way it ought to be. The king's character informs your life practices. That was principles for giving. Now I want to move on to the second principle. It's principles for ministry. And, and we, we want to expedite through verse 5 through 7 where Paul addresses his upcoming travel plans. He says, I intend to go to Corinth by way of Macedonia. He's got a cross from Ephesus, which is on the other side of the Aegean Sea. And he wants to get across the sea before winter. If he goes to Macedonia, he wants to get down to Corinth. People didn't travel in the wintertime in the ancient world, and he says, I want to stay with you when I get there, but I don't want to hurry. I want to be able to spend time. Now, the principle that I want to point out to you is found in verses 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Even this says something about 
God's character and it informs your life practice. Paul is writing the letter sometime in springtime, sometime between Passover and Pentecost. But it's the explanation of the work of ministry that the Lord has placed in front of him that I think is so helpful for us and instructive. He calls it a a wide door for effective work. Literally, a great and effectual door. That's an odd phrase. If I was talking about this door over here or the door out front, nobody would ever go, this is a really effectual door. It's either a door or it's not. And you anticipate that a door must open if it's going to do the work. Well, here's what Paul says. The Lord has opened a door and it's wide open. Luke chapter 19, excuse me, Acts chapter 19, Luke records what happened to Paul in Ephesus. He spoke for three months in a synagogue. Stubborn opposition rose up in the synagogue. Paul left and he moved over to the hall of Tyrannus, where scholars believe that he preached for two years and, and probably spoke to as many as two million people. Here's how Luke records it in Acts 19. Verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Acts 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Can you imagine what an encouragement that must have been for Paul? How would that motivate not only him, but also those who were invested in the kingdom work? In the business world, we might say something like, well, there's a little window of opportunity, and I think we can make a profit here. Paul says, it's not a window. It's a door, and the thing is wide open. And as you read Acts chapter 19, you say, the Lord's work is profound. The Holy Spirit is doing something great. But... The evil one and his minions fought to shut it. It happened like this. Demetrius, a silversmith, who made these little silver shrines to the goddess Artemis, gathered up some other tradesmen whose business was suffering because this gospel which was being preached caused new believers to recognize, well, a silver idol is actually nothing but a piece of silver. It's powerless. Well, they started whining because they're being economically hurt. And they cast the whole thing under a nationalistic guise. This is what he says. The the, the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing. She might be deposed of her magnificence. Now, friends, if your God can be deposed of its magnificence because someone says it's not God, it's probably not God. So they captured two or three of the followers of Christ, created a mob-like atmosphere, and for two hours they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and the entire city is in an uproar. How can both be true? God opens the door for wide and effective ministry, and also there's opposition. Why is it that we presume that the church with no challenges is the church which has been blessed? Why is it that we presume spiritual growth is always steady and smooth? That your service in this ministry should be free of frustration? 
That the church which does everything the way I want it to be done is the church that I should attend. In anything spiritual, whether we're talking about the personal or the profound, never presume that God's way is the way free of opposition. I mean, it doesn't even matter if I'm talking about my own personal devotional life or planting a gospel-driven, Christ-centered church in Auburn. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about your own battle against your own individual sins or the grand work of the Holy Spirit in Auburn and Opelika and the whole world. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the basics of simply believing that the Lord's good when I can't understand what He's doing or whether we're talking about His reign in the cosmos. The easy way is not always the Lord's way. In your day, in the state of Alabama, people look at numbers and they give it a thumbs up. Does God's kingdom advance without opposition? Is that really the way ministry works? Not according to Paul. You can and should expect that when the Lord opens the door, the evil one necessarily wants to shut it. And the king's character informs your own life practice in this regard. Where God opens the door for ministry, He will be the one who makes it effective. And you just jump in where He has placed you and be faithful in that space. God will do whatever He wants to do and no opposition can ultimately ever stop the advance of His kingdom. We've talked about principles of giving, principles of ministry. We're going to close and this is our shortest point. Principles for the Lord's servants. So we're going to use the comments that he makes about Timothy and Apollos to provide these two closing principles about the Lord's servants. Look at verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, Timothy's a young man. In fact, ten years later, when Paul writes the letter First Timothy, he's still a young man. We call Timothy timid also. That seems to be the nature of his personality. I think Paul anticipates that to come to Corinth and speak to them about very challenging things is going to be very challenging. And Paul's got some concerns about how Corinth will receive a timid young man. And so here's a little principle concerning the Lord's servants. Do not judge the Lord's servants strictly by the standard of the world. Well, he's a little too young. He's a little too timid. Paul says, let me tell you the factor that you need to consider. He's doing the work of the Lord. She's doing the work of the Lord. Don't despise him or her personally. Instead, long to see him or her prosper Some people presume that charisma and polish is actually the proof of God's calling. Do not judge the Lord's servants by the standards of the world. Paul says we serve the king, let his character drive how we support his servants. Number 12, I mean, excuse me, verse 12 brings our... His comments about Apollos. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now if you've read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, you know how profound this comment is. Because 
chapters 1 through 4, Paul addressed the divisions in the church. Some people said, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Peter. Others said, I follow Apollos. Paul said, Christ is not divided. And this phrase now concerning Apollos tells us that they wrote to him and they said, hey, what about Apollos? Could you send him to us? You notice Paul's response, you notice Apollos' response, and you suddenly gain the principle about the Lord's servants. Paul calls Apollos brother. On the other hand, Apollos refuses to go to Corinth at this moment. Given what's going on in Corinth about divisions, why do you suppose he's not willing to go at this moment? Because he doesn't want to add to the divisions. He doesn't want to build the Apollos faction. The Lord's true servants must be kingdom-minded. Jesus is the king. You and I are his servants. Therefore, whoever preaches the substance of the true gospel is a brother, and we are not divided. Christ Presbyterian Church is not in competition with any other church who preaches the true gospel. We are fellow servants of the same king. And so your family and your friends who attend another church where the true gospel is preached, they are likewise not in competition with you. Well, here's how our church is doing. It's doing better than yours. Or even feeling inferior. I can't believe their church is doing so well. I have a chip on my shoulder. No. At Christ's presence, we're going to stay in our lane. We're going to preach the true gospel that's found in the Bible. We're going to pray for the the help of the Holy Spirit. And we will pray for the Lord to spread His Word from the mouths of every faithful person who preaches Christ crucified for sinners. And that's how the King's character will shape our own life practices. Principles for giving, principles for ministry, principles of the Lord's servants. Let's pray.